Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, where we will find the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Though many of you are wrestling to find the book of Daniel right now, I think most of us are familiar with the story. Let's have a little fun for just a second. How many of you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Okay. I think we can just go home then. I thought this would be new to some of you, but apparently not. No, this is a, uh, this is a familiar story. Daniel chapter 6, we are entering into what is often the dangerous territory of incredibly familiar scripture. Daniel in the lion's den. Many of us know the, this story. If you grew up in the church, it's nearly impossible that you have not heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's difficult to even picture the story without images of flannel graph appearing in your mind. It's the story of children's Sunday school lessons. It's a, it's a fun story about God shutting the mouths of lions. However, I would suggest this morning that the story of Daniel in the lion's den is for many of us a misremembered and misunderstood story. How interesting it is that one of the most well-known stories in the Bible is given so little attention once we move past childhood. Ironically, the story affectionately known as Daniel in the lion's den doesn't actually tell us anything about Daniel in the lion's den. The story revolves not around the events that took place down in that den. The story revolves around the faithful life of a faithful Jew who was in captivity in a hostile land. And that faithful lifestyle leads to an incredible miracle in the face of certain death. In many ways, the story of Daniel chapter 6 is a story that is the climax of a message that began all the way back in Daniel chapter 1. The book of Daniel starts with Jerusalem being conquered by Babylon. The Babylonian practice was to take the best young men that Jerusalem had to offer, to bring them back to their culture, to, to their territory, and to use those young men for Babylonian dominance. They would bring them back. They would educate them in Babylonian ways and, and use them for their own good. Daniel is one of these young men who was taken hostile in the first conquest against Jerusalem, and he's taken back as a captive to Babylon. The book of Daniel starts with, with telling us that the nature of Daniel was, was, he was very young, probably 14 or 15 years old. He's taken to Babylon. He's, he's, a, he's a handsome man. He's an intelligent man. He's wise. He's, he's tactful. He, he probably has royal blood, but he's deported. He's deported to a land that is hostile, that does not recognize his God because of his intelligence and his appearance and of his youthfulness. So Daniel finds himself in a strange pagan land. He finds himself in a place for the first time that does not recognize his God. What's the point of the book of Daniel? It's really a twofold message to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and they both communicate the sovereignty and the authority of God. 
to the Jews who are a people group who are now in captivity. The message is very clear to them. The book of Daniel is written that they would know that God is still in control even though they are in captivity and that he's still watching out for his faithful ones. But to the Gentiles who have conquered God's people, there's a very similar message. God is in control. And he is the one who places kings where he wants them. He is the one who removes kings when he wants to. There are glorious kings in the, book of, in, the, in the book of Daniel, renowned men, powerful men, but they're all learning the same message, that they only have what God allows them to have, and that Yahweh is the one true living God. Daniel anticipates that all of these kings will fall, but that there is one king yet who will remain, and that is Jesus Christ, who will reign forever and ever. Daniel covers the fall of Jerusalem, Judah, It covers the fall of Babylon. It prophesies the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, of the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and ultimately looks to the empire that will never fall. That is the one that is reigned by Jesus Christ. The message of Daniel is essentially that history belongs to God. The days of a nation are predetermined by God. The days of a nation cannot be extended or restrained by one millisecond against his perfect plan. And in his perfect plan, his faithful ones are perfectly safe. They may face death. They may even die. But if they are allegiant to the sovereign God, then they can rest that he is in control and that they need not fear what man can do. They need not fear what a fiery furnace can do. They need not fear what lions can do. They need not fear what the enemy of our souls can do. We can trust in God. And Daniel exemplifies for us how we can do that. How to live a faithful life in a faithful land. The context for Daniel chapter 6 is really set in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30. In Daniel chapter 5, the end of this long story about Daniel and Belshazzar, we, we read this. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Belshazzar, the last ruler of Babylon, is killed. Because Babylon is conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And in those few words in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30, one of the most significant events in in history takes place. Babylon falls. Babylon falls to another people. A man named Darius receives the kingdom in the place of Belshazzar, who was ruling. Darius is placed in leadership as a ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. And that great nation... The world-dominating power of the day, Babylon, no longer reigns. This is a new day, the day of the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius is the one who is leading, and we have no idea who Darius actually is. There are a few theories. Some are better than others, but ultimately, we don't know who the person of Darius is in history. That's because Darius is not a name, it's a title. It refers to the one who holds the scepter. And so it's difficult to identify in history exactly who this Darius was. What we do know is that he's ruling over a very large area and that he's a pagan king. As we read through this chapter, we learn that this king, Darius, undergoes an amazing transformation in Daniel chapter 6. In verse 1, Darius is looking 
for the best way to organize his kingdom. He's figuring out how he wants to structure his leadership and he's appointing certain men to certain positions so that he can lead this kingdom well. A pagan king looking to set up an efficient system. But by the end of Daniel chapter six, we come to look at verse 25 of Daniel chapter six. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I, Darius, make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. This King Darius undergoes an amazing transformation of simply looking for a way to set up his kingdom and it leads to a series of events that climax with him saying, everyone in my kingdom bows, serves, and worships the God of Daniel. What takes place between those two bookends is an amazing, amazing story. We can look at the conclusion of this story before we even dive into what takes place in Daniel's life here and realize that the effect of Daniel's life is that God is making his glory known. The effect of Daniel's life is that through Daniel, God is making his glory known. God is working through the life of Daniel to make himself known to all of the nations. I think that's one of the messages of this chapter, that God sovereignly displays his glory through his faithful ones. This is a message to the Jews in captivity to the Babylonians who have just suffered defeat, to the Medo-Persians and their world dominance. God is in control. God is in charge. No man or beast can change his plan and that he demands a life of allegiance to him. So Daniel shows us what that looks like. What does a life of allegiance to the sovereign God look like? He displays that. This is gonna be our structure for this morning with three bold testimonies of allegiance that display God's sovereign authority. Three bold testimonies of allegiance that display God's sovereign authority. Number one, the first bold testimony of allegiance that displays God's sovereign authority is a reputation of holiness. Daniel has a reputation of holiness and his reputation of holiness displays the sovereign authority of God. Daniel, over the course of his life, develops a reputation for being a righteous and a wise man. That reputation ultimately lands him in a leadership position with the new empire. In the beginning of this chapter, we are in the very first days of the new king Darius. But I want us to see what has already taken place. Look at verses one and two of Daniel chapter six. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, over the 120 satraps, three commissioners or presidents of whom Daniel was one. That these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. 
Darius is setting up his leadership structure in this new empire. And the way that he sets it up, the way that he decides he wants to facilitate all of the events in his kingdom is that he sets up 120 men called satraps in verse 1. They are a group of men that ruled over smaller provinces or areas of the kingdom that would have carried out the will of the king. But this kingdom was so vast and there was so much need for oversight that Darius realized he alone was not sufficient to oversee these 120 men. And so he appoints three additional individuals, three commissioners or three presidents. And those three commissioners are in a very important role. Their job is to essentially lead the leaders. There's 120 satraps and over them, three commissioners. They are in charge of watching over and of facilitating all of the other leadership over this nation. We're told that Daniel was one of these three men. So the leadership structure in Babylon goes, King Darius, these three men of whom Daniel was one, and 120 rulers to watch over the kingdom. Daniel and these two other men's job were given in verse, in verse two. It's twofold. Their job is to make sure that the satraps would be accountable to watch over the satraps, to facilitate them, to make sure that they do their job, that they get it done. And second, that the king might not suffer loss. We're told ultimately that Daniel is in this position with these other two commissioners to protect the king. They were to have the very best interests of the king in mind to make sure that none of these under rulers performed anything against the will of the king. And so Daniel and two other men are given this very important task that the king would not suffer loss. Daniel is one of them. Which is fascinating because Daniel is a foreigner from a conquered empire. But he is in the highest position in the land other than the king. Daniel had a good reputation. He had served Nebuchadnezzar faithfully. He had served Belshazzar faithfully. He was always honest. He was always loyal. We come to Daniel chapter 6 at what may be for some of us a surprising stage in Daniel's life. Uh, Daniel is no longer young in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 1, he's probably 14 or 15 years old. But when we fast forward to chapter 6, Daniel is pushing 90 years old. Daniel has been in Babylon for most of his life. And he has demonstrated faithfulness in every category. Daniel's reputation had been built over many, many years. The events of Daniel in the lion's den are not just a random one-off. It comes after years and decades of faithfulness. Daniel has a good reputation and it's landed him in a position as a leader of leaders in this new world-dominating empire. But not only is Dan in this position with, Daniel in this position with two other men, look at verse three. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Daniel, in his ruling with these two other men over the 120 satraps, immediately begins setting himself apart. He's distancing and distinguishing himself. It's not that he's necessarily trying to create distance between himself and others. It's that he has an extraordinary spirit that others don't have. That expression, extraordinary spirit, appears several times in the book of Daniel, and it's rather vague. I think the point, it's, it's meant to be intentionally vague, that there's, there's, there's something different about Daniel. 
It's internal. It's evident that he has something in him that others don't have. His attitude, his actions, his words, they all indicate that that there's something inside of him that is unlike all other men around him. It's extraordinary, an extraordinary spirit. Daniel did not blend in. Daniel stood out. And everyone knew it. We're going to see through this chapter. Everyone knew that Daniel was different, especially those who were closest to him. He did not just have a public righteousness. It was those who worked with him every day that knew that Daniel was different. Private, public, job, home, he's the same. So what's the effect of such a lifestyle, of such an extraordinary spirit? Well, we're told that the king wants to put Daniel in charge of all of the other rulers and all of the other satraps. Daniel is already in the highest position and the king wants to promote him. Because even in the highest position in the land, Daniel stood out. The king looks to him and he says, I, in, in verse three, I'm, I'm gonna appoint you over the entire kingdom. Which is just a fascinating appointment by the king because to rule over the entire kingdom would seem to be the king's job. But he looks to Daniel and he says, I want you to rule this kingdom. I want you to reign over it, which, which is just amazing. Daniel, a Jewish captive, is going to function as the king. He's going to rule over everybody. The king has seen an extraordinary spirit in him that enables him to lead as no one else can. And he says, I want to put you not just with two other men and ruling over everyone. I want to put you above everyone else but me. I want you to rule this land. The other leadership isn't comfortable with Daniel being promoted. There is hostility that immediately surfaces when the prospect of this promotion becomes known. So the other leaders, the other satraps and the two other commissioners start looking for a way to accuse Daniel of wrongdoing. Try to find a flaw. They find corruption that they can present to the king so that Daniel doesn't get this promotion. It's very important that we understand these men's intention. They want to expose a flaw in Daniel that will show that Daniel is not loyal to the king so that Daniel doesn't get this promotion. These men don't want him to be promoted. So the first place that they look is in his governmental affairs. Look at verse 4. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Okay, so they're looking specifically in regards to his job. They're looking in the governmental affair part of Daniel's life. Looking for some way to accuse him. Some way to keep him from getting this promotion. But look at what happens. But they could find no ground of accusation. They could find no ground of evidence of corruption. They they, they can't find anything on Daniel. They look for corruption. They look for an accusation that they can make and there's nothing. Why? Why can they find no ground for accusation against Daniel? How does he escape such close scrutiny? He doesn't get off on a technicality. Keep reading in verse four. Inasmuch as he, Daniel, was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. 
These men looked for flaws in Daniel's governmental abilities and his governmental capacities, and they can find nothing. Not because he escaped, not because they didn't look in the right place. No, because Daniel was faithful. There was no negligence, it tells us. He didn't slack off. He didn't overlook anything. There was no corruption. No corruption. Daniel was clean. There wasn't any evidence of any wrongdoing in his job, which is fascinating because he's been in this role of leadership in Babylon for decades, and they can find no wrongdoing. We've become fairly familiar with this type of a process in our country. Someone gets appointed to a position that others don't like, and immediately they look to expose, to expose flaws in that person's character. Often our leaders have, in fact, been involved in things that they should not have been involved in. Perhaps they escape on a technicality, but they certainly are not above accusation. Daniel's above accusation. Daniel's faithful. They have nothing on Daniel. There's, in our vernacular, there's no smoking gun. There's nothing that points to anything wrong. There's no corruption, no negligence. Daniel is clean. He's a righteous man. Righteous men are faithful in every realm of their lives, including their jobs. Daniel's above reproach in every category. He's responsible and he's faithful to a T. And these men realize that really fast. So they changed their efforts. Look at verse five. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. There's nothing in the governmental affairs and so they change their approach to attack his religious affairs. They attack the law of his God. This is fascinating. To get Daniel, they had to make something up. To bring down Daniel, they have to make an incredibly nuanced plan. And the plan is actually, it's really smart. Because they've discovered that Daniel is completely loyal to the king. There's no flaws there. There's no grounds for accusation there. He's completely loyal. And so the only shot, these men realize the only shot at bringing him down is to make Daniel choose between the king and his God. The only way that they could ever expose that Daniel is not loyal to the king is if they exposed that Daniel was more loyal to God. How did these men know that this would work? How did they know that this plan, that, I mean, this is a far-fetched plan that they come up with. How did they know that this plan would work? Because they knew. Somehow they knew that Daniel would never disobey his God. They knew where Daniel's ultimate allegiance lies. There's so much in here that is instructive in the life of Daniel for us. Do the people around us know where our allegiance lies? That we will be faithful and responsible and above reproach in any category of life unless you ask me to disobey God. These men knew that about Daniel. They bet their lives on that being true in regards to Daniel. Daniel had a reputation of holiness. These men knew the one thing they could count on was Daniel obeying his God. So here's the plan. Verses six through eight. 
Then the commissioners and the satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. It's a common greeting. It's what you said when you walked in to see the king. King Darius, live forever. Here's what they say. Here's their plan. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Wow. These men institute, or ask the king, rather, to institute a law. This law is a ban on prayer. The law that they are seeking to institute is a ban on prayer. Here's the essence of the law. They're they're telling Darius, we want you, to essentially perform the role of mediator between God and man for the next 30 days. If anyone has any request, they're not supposed to take it to any other man. They're not supposed to deliver it straight to God. They're supposed to bring all of their requests through you. And so he's he's essentially serving in this role of, of priest or mediator between God and man for 30 days. It's a ban on prayer. That's their approach. That's their plan. If we want to bring Daniel down, how do we do it? We make him choose between praying to his God and obeying the king. How did they know that a ban on prayer would trap Daniel? And this, this is it. This is the best they could come up with. How did they know this would work? How did they know a, a ban on prayer is what would trip Daniel up? Because they knew Daniel had a reputation. They knew that Daniel prayed three times a day and that he would not compromise on that. Daniel's reputation was such that he would not compromise even if it cost him his life. Ask again, do the people around us think that we would die before we compromised on our religious convictions? (laughs) These men knew Daniel would be fed to lions before he'd compromise on praying. The plan that they present is based entirely, completely on lies. They come before the king and they say, all the commissioners, in verse seven, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors, we've all consulted together. That's a lie. All the commissioners weren't there because Daniel was certainly not a part of this plan. There's only three commissioners They say all of the commissioners are on board with this idea. That's not true. We were told earlier in the chapter that it was the commissioners and the satraps who worked together to come up with this plan, but that's not what they say. They say all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, they weren't there, the satraps, the high officials, they weren't there, and the governors, they weren't there. But they say everyone in the kingdom that is in any leadership capacity, we've all come together and decided that you, O king, should function in this role. The entire plan is based completely on lies. It's also based based completely on flattery. They come to the king and and, and they lift him up. They say, you know what? If anyone wants to talk to God, they need to come through you. What kind of a king approves a law like that? They, 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 They play directly to his pride. But the thing that stands out most in And this law that they make is that it is based entirely on permanence. There's an emphasis all through this chapter that this law, once it's instituted, cannot be changed. 
in verse 7, there's a, there's a double emphasis. They come to the king and they say, establish a statute and enforce an injunction. There's a double emphasis there. Make it painfully clear. Look at verse 8 and the permanence of this plan. Now, O king, they're pushing him. O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. There's some urgency here. They're they're trying to get him to sign on the dotted line. Come on, king, sign this thing. We want you to be the mediator. And once you sign it, it's permanent. We We want you to be the mediator with permanence. Nothing can change it because that's how great you are, O king. The penalty for disobeying this law is at the end of verse 7. He shall be cast into the lion's den. Cast into the lion's den. This is not figurative. It was a literal event that a man who disobeyed the king's law would be thrown into a pit filled with lions and would be devoured. This was not uncommon in the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a form of punishment that was meant to be especially terrifying. To become food for the lions, to be thrown down to hungry lions that had been starved and and, and were needing something to eat and they were gonna eat the first thing that was thrown to them. We're gonna see that illustrated later in this chapter. And that, that that was a punishment that was meant to deter any disobedience. Who would disobey if the punishment was being fed to lions? This was a cavern in the ground. There were multiple, several hungry lions, and it was a terrifying death. This form of capital punishment was effective. But the king agrees. Look at verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document. That is the injunction. The king agrees the plan is set. It cannot be changed. In accordance with the way that the laws of the Medes and the Persians worked. Once this law was signed by the king, it was permanent. Seems that that pattern was there to avoid just making laws too quickly that there was a permanence associated with it that made sure that every law that was enforced and every law that was created was, was something that had been taken very seriously, but the king falls into these men's trap. He falls to their flattery. I mean, he's planning to appoint Daniel to rule the kingdom, so I, what else does he have to do? Might as well function as God for 30 days. And so he signs it. And now Daniel has a decision to make. And it was very much a decision that Daniel had to make. Daniel was not ignorant. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, this was very much a decision for Daniel. Daniel heard about the new law. It had reached his ears. He wasn't there when it was being signed, but it it reached his ears that there was a new law that was banning prayer. So Daniel knew what the punishment would be. He knew what was taking place. But how he responds to this knowledge gives us a second bold testimony of allegiance. A second bold testimony of allegiance is an obedience amidst persecution. An obedience amidst persecution is the second bold testimony of allegiance that displays God's sovereign authority. 
Daniel is now officially undergoing religious persecution. It is illegal for Daniel to obey his God. So Daniel is in a scenario where he has a choice. Do I obey God or do I obey man? Do I obey my king or do I obey my Lord? Romans chapter 13 tells us that we are to obey the governmental officials that are over us because God is ultimately the one who put them there. So we obey the rulers that God has instituted. We need to obey the governmental officials. But in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, Peter says that whenever we are forced to choose between God and man, that we choose God every time. That whenever we are given the choice between obeying a man's command and obeying God's command, if those two things are conflicted against one another, it's, it's not a choice. We obey God rather than men, Peter says. So what does Daniel do? Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Daniel obeys God rather than men. Daniel obeys God. He doesn't even have to think about it. When he heard, he goes to his house and he prays. When forced to choose between doing what my God asked me to do and what anyone else asked me to do, I will choose my God every time, says Daniel. But Daniel's scenario is, is actually perhaps a little more complicated than it may seem on the surface The ban that's placed here is a ban on prayer. The law assumes that an individual must be caught in the act. You'd have to be able to give evidence that a person was caught in prayer to be able to bring them before the king and have him thrown to to the lions. What's fascinating about this scene is that Jewish law does not demand that one pray towards Jerusalem. It doesn't demand that one pray three times a day. It doesn't demand that one kneel. Those aren't laws. Daniel conceivably could have started to reason through this scenario and and maybe try to justify changing his habits a little bit. But Daniel doesn't say, "Can can I technically, like on a nuance, get away with both of these? compromise on my practices in a way that allows me to not get caught? Daniel doesn't do that. We're given very important details in verse 10. He enters his house in verse 10. He's, He's right before his window open towards Jerusalem. He continues kneeling on his knees three times a day and he's praying and giving thanks. We're told that this took place when Daniel heard that the document was signed. He went straight to his house. He opens his windows, he kneels towards Jerusalem, and he keeps praying three times a day. He's making requests. He's he's giving thanks in the midst of religious persecution. Why does Daniel choose to continue in this lifestyle? Why does he continue these habits? We're told at the end of verse 10, We're given an interesting phrase, as he had been doing previously. 
The Aramaic word that's used there when it says this was as he had been doing previously indicates that this is the purpose for why he prayed in this way. You know why Daniel continued to pray the way that he's always prayed? Because that's, why, that's how he always prayed. That's, 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 that was Daniel's practice. It was how he prayed. Daniel knew that to change his habits would be to bow the knee to man. He wasn't going to change. He wasn't going to compromise just because there was a law that was instituted. He wasn't going to do, he wasn't going to violate what he thought was right regardless of the consequences. How amazing is that in Daniel? There's no law that, that demands that Daniel pray in this way. But even when a law that is instituted that makes him die, he doesn't start saying, well, maybe, maybe I could close my window. Maybe I don't kneel. Maybe I only pray once a day. No, Daniel says, I'm not bowing the knee to man. They're asking me to conform. They're asking me to, to change my habits in, in accordance with the way that they want me to live. And I'm, I'm not allegiant to them. I'm allegiant to my God. How amazing is this? He's laying his life on the line and he's carrying on like nothing changed. Daniel's faithful. He's obedient. In the face of persecution, in the face of death, he won't change. He's, he's faithful and courageous and bold and unwavering. He's obedient. Well, the men catch him in this act. They're watching for it. The entire purpose of this law was to catch Daniel. And so in verse 11, then these men came by agreement. They're working together. It's a conspiracy. And they found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction? That any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Daniel's opponents go straight to the king. Daniel knew what they predictably knew that he would do. They've caught him. They go and they tell the king, you instituted this law, right? It's permanent, can't be changed. The king says, yes, in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, this thing cannot be changed. Then verse 13, then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. The king knows that he's been tricked. He knows that he had been caught up in his own glory, in the glory of his own name. He knows that he had acted foolishly and that Daniel would pay for his mistake. It's fascinating. These men find Daniel praying. They go straight to the king. Because Daniel did what they knew he would do. They go straight to the king and they say, Daniel's guilty. Daniel's guilty. You signed it. Daniel violated your law. They say, he pays no attention to you. That's not true. 
Daniel's demonstrated a lifetime of paying attention to those who are superiors over him. But they say, he pays no attention to you or the injunction that you signed. That is true. That injunction caused Daniel to sin against his God. And he said, I will not do that. I will not change. I will not bow the knee against my God. It's a fascinating detail in here. They say, Daniel is continuing to pray three times a day. The only thing that would have made Daniel guilty of violating the law was praying one time. He only had to be caught once to be guilty. And I think we can use our imaginations a little bit here to imagine that as soon as these men caught Daniel praying, they probably didn't stick around to say, I wonder if he's going to do it again. These men most likely saw Daniel pray and went right to the king to report what had taken place. But they report to the king that Daniel prays three times a day. It's fascinating. Again, it speaks to Daniel's reputation. They knew his habits. He didn't live his Christian life in private. It was readily apparent and available to others. He didn't hide behind the window. He was was out in public living his life for the glory of God to make God's glory known. The king knows he's been tripped up. The king knows he's been caught. Look at verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement again to the king and said to the king, recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. There's that statement. It shows up one more time. This law can't be changed. Throughout this entire chapter, that line appears again and again. The laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. The laws of the Medes and Persians, there is nothing that overcome it. Once this is signed, it is as permanent as permanent can be. Despite the king's efforts, he wants to free Daniel. He wants to find a loophole, but it can't be done. It can't be done. This law cannot be changed. Daniel is done. There's nothing that can stop it. And so in verse 16, the fateful blow is delivered. Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Daniel's brought in for his disobedience to the king. He's thrown into a pit filled with lions, ready to devour him. And it's here in this last section of this chapter that we see a third bold testimony of allegiance, a faith in the face of death. The third bold testimony of allegiance that displays God's sovereign authority is a faith in the face of death. Daniel's thrown in. He's thrown into the pit. He's thrown into the den of lions, that terrifying punishment meant to deter any criminal Daniel is thrown down into the pit. Fascinatingly, in the second half of verse 16, the king, fully aware of Daniel's faith, gives Daniel a parting message. Look at it. This is fascinating. Verse 16, then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. 
Isn't that just a fascinating statement by the king that as he's throwing Daniel down in the pit, he says, it is your God that must save you now. Now, it's possible that the God of Israel had developed a reputation in King Darius' mind. He had certainly delivered his people before. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, many of us are familiar with that story. That was in Babylon when they were delivered from the fiery furnace. God protected them. Perhaps the king had heard that story. It's more than likely, however, that this is just a misplaced polytheism, belief in many gods. And the king is making a desperation attempt here. The king is certainly not a follower of Yahweh at this stage. But there's just no other hope. Daniel is in the lion's den. The king looks to him and says, your God alone can save you now. There's nothing else we can do. Remember the emphasis of permanence all through this chapter. You're down in there. The only hope left is that your God would intervene. The God that you constantly serve. From man's perspective, from the king's perspective, from any earthly perspective, Daniel is done. Remember all of those signs of permanence. The law can't be changed. You disobey, you die. More of those signs of permanence, those signs of futility, they keep showing up. Look at verse 17. Then a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing, nothing, nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Daniel's down in the den. A stone is rolled over the hole. A seal is placed on that stone with two signets, not just one, the king's ring and his nobles. This is done. It cannot be changed. Daniel is as good as dead. So Darius' hope and his expression in verse 16 is, is that Daniel's God would intervene. That, that's just, it's his final desperation heave. Like King Darius just throws a Hail Mary here. The game's been lost. Let's just chuck the ball up and hope for a miracle. That's Darius' approach. And the king's miserable. He's miserable. Look at what takes place later that night. Verse 18. Then the king went off to his palace and he spent the night fasting. Can't eat. And no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. He doesn't want entertainment. He, he can't eat. He can't sleep. The king is miserable. All he can do is hold on to the thread that Daniel's God might deliver him. Verses 19 and 20. Then the king arose at dawn. He never slept, but he, he gets out of bed and at dawn, at the very break of day, he went in haste to the lion's den. He's running, moving with haste, terrified, still feeling guilty, did not sleep the night before, but he has to go see. So he runs to the den and look at verse 20. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel, have you been delivered by the only one who could ever deliver you from these impossible circumstances. The only hope is your living God. Daniel, have you been delivered? The king is not running to the lion's den with any confidence. We're told that the king runs to the lion's den with a troubled voice. He's terrified and he's concerned. He's, he's given up hope at this point. But he gets to the lion's den holding on to, to anything that he possibly can and says, has your living God delivered you? 
And then comes verse 21. Then Daniel spoke to the king. <laughs> o king, live forever. What a fascinating response given the circumstances. Spent the night with the lions. Now, how great is that? Daniel's alive. Daniel is alive. The king comes and Daniel has survived the night. But in Daniel's position, it's not just like I, I barely survived. Somehow I made it through. Daniel's response to the king is not, get me out of here. There's lions all around me. His response is, oh, king, live forever. We're good down here. All signs are normal. He gives the king a common greeting, not a desperation call. Live forever, O king. Then Daniel is calling up from within the lion's den. He's calling up with lions all around him and he gets evangelistic on the king. Look at verse 22. My God has sent his angel. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also towards you, O king. I have committed no crime. Daniel defends his character even from within the pit and, and, and he calls up and says, my God is the one who has delivered me because I committed no crime against you. I committed no crime against him. Daniel gives all of the glory to his God. Daniel gives testimony that God protects his righteous ones. Daniel says, I was innocent before him and you, so God protected me. So they pull Daniel up. They pull Daniel up. Then the king was very pleased. Verse 23. And he gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted his God. They get Daniel up out of the pit and there's not a scratch. There's not an injury. A lion didn't touch him. These beasts that were starving, that existed for the sake of, of, of killing criminals didn't touch Daniel. Why not? Why not? Well, we're given the answer to that question. We're told why Daniel was not consumed by the beast. It's the last words in verse 23. No injury was found whatever on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel trusted in God. He had a faith in the very face of death. Daniel in the lion's den. We're not told all the details of what happened in the lion's den. What we're told is that while Daniel was down there, he has a faith in God. He trusted in God. In Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that talks about the glorious faith of heroes of the past, Daniel is mentioned, not by name, but in a long list of things that, that happened because of men's faith. We're told that the mouths of lions were shut. That by man's faith, he shut the mouths of lions. Daniel, in the face of death, had a faith in his God. Isn't it amazing in this story, we call it Daniel in the lion's den, that we don't actually get to go down into the den with Daniel. I mean, Daniel's writing this. He knew what happened down there, and I'm dying to know some more details about what happened in the den. 
All we know about Daniel in the lion's den is that while he's down there, he's trusting God. That's all we need to know. He's down there with a faith in the face of death. This passage is not a promise that injury or pain or death won't fall on believers. The reality, what we know to be true is that many Christians have died in the mouths of lions. It's not a passage promising that if you're obedient enough that God will protect you. In the second century, a bishop named Ignatius who is said to have been a disciple of the Apostle John, was arrested at the command of the Roman emperor for refusing to sacrifice to Roman gods and for influencing others to do the same. Ignatius looks to the Roman emperor and he says, you are in error when you call the demons of the nations gods, for there is one God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that are in them, and one Jesus Christ and only one begotten son whose kingdom I will enjoy. The Roman emperor looks back and says, we command that Ignatius be carried to the great city Rome there to be devoured by the beasts for the gratification of the people. When the holy martyr heard this sentence, he cried out with joy, I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast granted me the honor with a perfect love towards thee and hast made me to be bound with iron chains like the apostle Paul. What little account we have of of Ignatius's martyrdom records that he was taken to the amphitheater, that he was thrown into the wild beasts, that he was thrown into the lions and devoured quickly. Polycarp, another second century bishop of of Smyrna, like Daniel, is 86 years old when he is arrested and he hears these words, have respect for your age, swear by the fortune of, of Caesar, repent and say down with the atheists. The atheists in in that terminology was what they referred to Christians as because they denied the Roman gods. It says, deny your God. Reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp says, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul looks back at him and said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. And Polycarp responds, call them. This text is not a passage that promises a lack of suffering or a lack of pain or a lack of death. Many believers throughout history have died at the mouths of lions. It is a message that those who are faithful to God can trust God, that even in the face of death, even in hostile circumstances, even in Babylon, even when men rise up against you, even when it's illegal to serve your God, even when all of the world seems against you, God is in control and he's doing what's best. He's in control of the nations and he's watching out for his faithful ones. It doesn't mean you won't die. It means that you can live with faith until he takes you home. Daniel's life puts the sovereign authority of God on display. Daniel can live a life in this way with a reputation of holiness, an obedience amidst persecution, and a faith in the face of death because he knows that God's in control. You know who gets the glory for Daniel's faithfulness? God does. In verse 24, the king then gives orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them and their children and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions had overpowered them and crushed all their bones. 
Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree, I make a new law, that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble, tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers, he rescues, he performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Daniel's life screamed one message. Belief in a sovereign God demands faithful allegiance regardless of one's surroundings. A reputation of holiness, obedience amidst persecution, faith in the face of death, they all point to the glory of God. It's God's will for our lives. There's much for us to evaluate in light of this story. Does my reputation point to the glory of God? Does my obedience fade in the face of persecution? Do I trust God in everything, even death? If the answer is yes, know that like Daniel, God's sovereign authority is on display in your life. But for all of us, I think we can find areas where we can grow in these things to, to show the world that God alone is the living God. His kingdom alone will endure forever and he alone is the all-powerful one. So let's commit to setting that tone together for the glory of God as he gives us opportunity to maintain bold testimonies of allegiance like Daniel that display the sovereign authority of God.